Two and a Half Admins, episode 49. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your blog post plug is FreeBSD TCP Performance System Controls. Yeah. So it talks about tuning uh, TCP and how you will measure it to find out what is going to make it better for your use case and so on. You know, we've done a lot of this myself in the past about, you know, trying to optimize a ZFS send from Toronto to Australia and, you know, deal with the fact that the latency is going to be really high and the window is going to want to grow really slow. So if you have to deal with things like that, this article walks you through it in a really understandable way. Nice. Well, link in the show notes. Let's start with some feedback then. Alex writes to us, I appreciate your sysadmins are not lawyers, but I think any excuse to talk about ZFS will fly on this podcast, so I figured I'll ask away. You know as well, Alex. Some time ago, I was listening to a podcast and someone, I think it was Jim, was discussing the implications of ZFS's CDDL license and its compatibility with the GPL. On the show, the commenter mentioned that it was effectively possible for Oracle to suddenly have a change of heart and decide tomorrow to relicense or dual license the original ZFS code as GPL. The implication was that this would somehow mean that the CDDL GPL incompatibility would be resolved and OpenZFS could be considered for merging into Linux. The bit I'm struggling to understand, though, is how this takes into account the years and years of contributions on top of the original ZFS code by now. Wouldn't the OpenZFS developers need to track down every single contributor to OpenZFS and ask for their consent for a relicense? Or is there something special about how the CDDL works that I'm missing here? The thing that folks miss about the Cuddle is it has a new versions feature in Section 4. Sun Microsystems Incorporated is the initial license steward and may publish revised and or new versions of this license from time to time. Each version will be given a distinguishing version number, except as provided in Section 4.3, no one other than the license steward has the right to modify this license. The effect of new versions. You may always continue to use, distribute, or otherwise make the covered software available under the terms of the version of the license under which you originally received it. However, I'm going to skip forward a bit, you may also choose to use, distribute, or otherwise make the covered software available under the terms of any subsequent version of the license published by the license steward. Okay, so now what that means is Oracle is the license steward for the Cuddle now because they bought Sun Microsystems lock, stock, and barrel. They own all rights that Sun ever had. As the license steward, they have the rights to offer a new quote-unquote version of the Cuddle in accordance with this part of the license itself. And that new version can be whatever they want it to be. It could be the GPL. It could be an MIT license. It could be... BSD, who knows, who cares? The point is, you can't tell a user you're no longer allowed to use the Cuddle license, but it is automatically dual licensed with whatever the license steward decides to offer as an additional option. So if Oracle, as the license steward, were to, with a stroke of a pen, say, hey, we're also going to make OpenZFS available under the MIT license, not just the Cuddle, that would take effect not only for Oracle's version, but also for OpenZFS, because OpenZFS is a fork from the original Sun Microsystems parent, and everybody who contributed under that license did so with that provision to the license. This is the license steward can offer a new version of it if they want to. So basically, they can make the Cuddle version 1.3 that was just the MIT license, basically. Exactly. And in fact, they've already done that once. They have not done that for ZFS, but they already did that to resolve GPL uh, incompatibility problems with D-Trace, 
which is another technology they bought from Sun, which was also Cuddle licensed. And for several years, Oracle was hands down the biggest GPL violating entity on the planet due to them shipping uh, unbreakable Linux with Dtrace on it. Okay, Jordan asked a free consulting question, which is in the queue, which is ever growing. And we might have to do another couple of just uh, consulting episodes, but we'll talk about that later. But Jordan also said, Joe, you say you don't like Reddit, but I know that you use Twitter. And I was wondering why you choose Twitter over Reddit. I feel like that since with Reddit, I'm following subreddits rather than people, I get a lot less toxicity. Twitter makes me feel sad, so I don't like to use it. Well, Jordan, good for you. If you like Reddit and don't like Twitter, right on. Good luck with that. But with Twitter, I just block anyone who I disagree with and I have a great time. That's my top tip. Just anyone who says anything you don't like, just block them and you will never see them again. I think basically the opposite with Twitter is like in Twitter, I follow people that I want to hear from. With Reddit, I can subscribe to a topic, but then I get a bunch of these Looney Tune people that want to go on and on about something in my favorite topic that I really don't want to hear about. Yeah, exactly. I follow a, a handful of people, a small lot, like 40 or 50 people who I actually know are all right. Whereas with Reddit, you're following subjects. Exactly. You, you end up with a, a bunch of people just saying stupid shit. Like, presumably you can block people on Reddit, but I've never looked into it. Also, Reddit's interface I don't like. I don't like all the voting and gaming of stuff and karma and points and stuff. That just seems dumb to me. It's not really any different than getting likes on Twitter, but sure. Or followers on Twitter. I, I personally kind of prefer the upvotes and downvotes for, you know, individual posts on Reddit to the the Twitter, you know, woofy metric for the Dr. O fans out there, you know, which is just like how many followers you have. Like, oh, do I need to pay attention to this person's opinion or not? Oh, they only have 50 followers. That gets a little annoying. It was even more annoying when I was one of those people who only had like 50 followers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The retweet thing, I guess, kind of makes sense on Twitter of of sharing the messages that resonate with you or whatever. But I don't know. All the social media stuff is stupid. <laughs> it's all garbage. Uh, every single social media platform is absolutely full of idiots. If you thought different, I hate to ruin your day, but yep, all of them. <laughs> but all of them are curatable. You can block the idiots or you can only follow the people or subreddits that you right. want to follow. You can avoid the idiots, generally speaking. Occasionally, some will slip through. But almost all of the platforms that I can think of have ways to self-moderate. Well, until you piss off somebody on Twitter who has 50,000 rabid followers and they make it their mission to harass you for a couple of weeks, that's actually uh, one of my coworkers at ours exited Twitter and that was why. They, they pissed off some right-winger with 50,000 followers and it was just non-stop, never-ending, you know, notifications of toxic crap from literally tens of thousands of people. And uh, that scales a little bit past, you know, oh, just click block and then you don't have to hear from them anymore. Yes, but in that sense, you can just mark your account as private and then no one can send you stuff. You just do that for a few weeks until it all calms down and then go back to normal. Not saying that you should have to do that, but it's the coward's way out. There are definitely problems with the fact that we're basically isolating ourselves into these bubbles of only people that agree with us. Oh, yeah. I'm not going with either Lee's method or Joe's. You know, I'm, I am going out on a pyre built from the flaming corpses of my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's the same thing as IRC, right? You in the channels that are in the topics you want to talk about and you leave the ones that are just full of rabid idiots. <laughs> 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by CheckMK. Go to checkmk.com slash 25admins. CheckMK is the best way to monitor your complex and hybrid IT infrastructure, bridging the gap between IT ops and DevOps teams. With CheckMK, you can go from zero to monitoring in less than 10 minutes and quickly gain a complete view of your IT infrastructure, no matter how complex. CheckMK can support thousands of devices across different locations, and it's easy to set them up. From physical infrastructure to hybrid environments, CheckMK can cope with the demanding needs of high-performing organizations. With around 2,000 plugins available, CheckMK supports industry-standard monitoring requirements out of the box. As well as operating systems, you can also monitor Cisco, HP, AWS, SAP, Docker, Azure, and Kubernetes. So go to checkmk.com slash 25admins and try out the open source or enterprise edition. That's checkmk.com slash 25admins. Let's talk about Pegasus, the spyware that the Israeli surveillance company NSO Group makes. This has made a big splash over the last couple of weeks. I first became aware of this from a Guardian article, but it was an investigation by the Guardian and 16 other media organizations. And it turns out that this spyware has been installed on Android phones and iPhones of 50,000 people, including some pretty high-profile names like the President of France and loads of journalists. The funniest part about this, I think, is the iPhone angle, that Apple prides itself on being super secure, but nope, it's just as vulnerable as Android, it seems. Everything is vulnerable to competent nation-state hacking groups. That's just the reality of life in 2021. If a nation-state level adversary can get their hands on a thing, they can own it. Even if you have your personal security high enough that they can't get your phone, if they get the phones of all the people you talk to, then they can see all the messages you were sending anyway. You know, oftentimes they will even avoid going after the hard target because that increases the chance of being detected. They'll go after all the people around them and just get the information from people that are less likely to have their phone actually analyzed and find malware on it. So I'm a little surprised to see it put on the president of France's phone. Who is the president of France talking to who isn't also extremely high profile, though? Yeah. And, you know, it could have been exactly that. You know, it wasn't that they were targeting the president of France. They were targeting somebody who was talking to the president of France. This software is is made and sold to lots of different people. And as with all surveillance tools, of course, it's going to get abused. (laughs) You know, I think uh, offline, Jim, you and I were talking about, uh, you know, LoveInt as one of the types of intelligence. (laughs) Absolutely. Creeping on people that the red teamer in question, you know, happens to find attractive or has a relationship or had a relationship with, you know, possibly 20 or 30 years ago. Humans are pretty weak to that. If you tell somebody, hey, you can find out exactly what your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend is doing right now, most humans are going to be real tempted to push that button. People are familiar with Facebook stalking, but imagine if you had access to tools, to information that wasn't as public as Facebook is. The temptation is going to be exactly the same or more because it's harder for them to tell you were doing it. (laughs) Tools that turn everything into Facebook. Now that's a dystopia. That that is a dystopia. (laughs) So is anything going to change after this shocking revelation? Oh, no, this isn't this isn't the first. It won't be the last. Um, I mean, yeah, this is a big story of the right now. Every time this happens, it is. But 
high profile targets phones get hacked. That's just ongoing reality. I don't see that changing. Yeah, and it's it's why usually the leaders of of countries have you know, not a standard phone <laughs> or have multiple phones, one for doing their Twittering and so on, and one for actually talking to people where they won't want to be listened to. There's a couple of different angles here. One of them is there are tools not built for surveillance like this that can be turned into stalking tools unintentionally, where people have built software for one purpose and it's been abused to turn it into surveillance tools, whether that's just, you know, cyberbullying or for stalking girlfriends or just, you know, the amount of, of blatant spyware you can buy to put on your kid's phone and so on is, is ridiculous. And if you can buy it to put it on your kid's phone, of course, there's a version that a government of a country can buy to put on journalists' phone. <laughs> and it'll be a lot harder to detect and a lot better built than the one you buy to put on your kid's phone. It's shocking to learn about if you weren't aware, but it's no surprise to those of us that, that know these kind of things. But it, it reminds me of uh, an older Usenix article from uh, James Micken, who is a security researcher at Microsoft. And his point was, you know, going much further than having strong passwords that you don't reuse and you know, the basic security stuff probably isn't worth it because you end up with either, you know, I think we've talked about before the rubber hose cryptography where they're just going to beat you with a $5 wrench until you give them the password. Or you get to the point where it's like, if you're being massaged upon, then, you know, unless you have magic fairy dust, there's nothing that's going to protect you. To be fair, the angle that we've mostly ignored so far talking about Pegasus, which does make it not necessarily a bit more newsworthy than the, the usual round of this kind of thing, but gets it there a little quicker. Usually this kind of weapons grade malware, for lack of a better phrase, it makes its way from nation states to criminals eventually just as a kind of leakage. Like eventually things flow down. Eventually, you know, the quote bad guys, unquote, get their hands on these nasty toys that emerged from, you know, nation state hacking groups. But in this case, the Israelis just sold it all over the place to some pretty shady, you know, entities like the United Arab Emirates. And, uh, you know, we've already seen use of Pegasus by Mexican drug cartels targeting journalists. So, unfortunately, you know, th this kind of thing is going to happen with any one of these tools. You know, the NSA lost control of its tools at least once that we know very publicly about. Uh, the NSO just flat out sold theirs along. But basically, this is unfortunately just part of the reality of life in a connected world. Yeah, like I remember back years ago before privacy was much of a topic, BlackBerry got in trouble for selling their enterprise surveillance software to countries that are famous for human rights abuses and things like that. It's a little bit different when the spyware comes directly from the phone manufacturer. <laughs> yeah. But again, that was software that was built for corporate entities to enforce their policy on corporate phones, but turned out if uh, you're the sole telco in a country and you treat every customer as if they were a user at your enterprise, you can apply those policies to them. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. 
Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. There seem to have been a lot of Windows vulnerabilities recently. One that you pointed out to us, Alan, is this Windows 10 vulnerability that allows anyone to get admin privileges. Yeah, so this one's pretty amusing. So it turns out, yeah, everybody's familiar with the registry in Windows, but it turns out, as with everything, those happen to just be files on the hard drive. And it turns out they accidentally uh, have permissions so that everybody in the users group, which includes all the unprivileged users who aren't administrator, have access to read those files. However, if you try to open the file, the, the registry hive itself, it won't because the file's locked by the operating system. Right? And so by accident, that prevents you from being able to read the entire registry as an unprivileged user. But for backup software, Microsoft came up with this concept of volume shadow copy that allows you to open a copy of a file even when it's locked. And uh, so by just putting in this slightly special path to get the volume shadow copy version of it, you can open the Windows Security Access Manager database as an unprivileged user and see all the password hashes for everybody and just go to town on them until you get the actual password and can log in as the administrator. And it reminded me of the uh, the good old days with like Windows 98 and so on, where you could like grab Loftcrack on a CD with a small rainbow table on it and get the password for somebody's laptop that they'd forgotten in a matter of minutes. I, I guess even Windows XP had better password hashing, but for compatibility, stored the password with the old type of hash as well. It still used LM hash in addition to using NTLM. And so it meant you could crack the weak hash and then it was the same password. Although, you know, you, you brought up the 90s and my favorite escalation technique in the night in the 90s on Windows was when the password prompt comes up and you turn on the computer, just hit escape and it goes away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was true all the way up through Windows ME. Uh, yeah. On the consumer side, you didn't get real password protection of any kind until uh, you know Windows 2000 and then Windows XP is where most people saw it. Yeah, so with XP, an LM hash was just especially bad because it broke your password into two separate seven-character hashes. So if you had an eight-character password, when you cracked it, you would crack the first seven characters separately from the last character. And because they weren't salted hashes, you could crack both halves at the same time. And so in a couple of minutes with a rainbow table, you could get any password uh, off a Windows machine. It was pretty amusing. Also, the password uh, is restricted to a maximum of 14 characters. It's converted to uppercase only. <laughs> yes, that too. I forgot that you don't have to search case sensitively. It's up, yep. so, And that's how they made a rainbow table I could fit basically every alphanumeric password plus a couple of special characters on a 650 megabyte CD because you could just do all uppercase plus the numbers and a couple other things like that. And you only had to support up to seven letters of the password because your password was broken into two separate passwords up to seven characters each and you could crack both halves at the same time. So it was just two separate seven character passwords and they were all uppercase. 
what you're actually done here is you've created something that's effectively as secure as one eight character passphrase. Because to crack two separate seven character passphrases, that takes the same number of tries as, you know, just doing eight because it's two to the eighth either way. Right. So this is an enormous difference between two to the eighth and two to the 14th. And then, you know, you carve out just giant swaths of the potential problem space by saying, oh, uppercase only, no lowercase, convert all that. Yeah. So basically, instead of normally you'd have uppercase is 26 plus lowercase 26 plus numbers is another 10 plus even just like, you know, dash and plus and things like that. And suddenly, yeah, instead of 70 to the power of 14, it's 70 to the power of seven, which is a hell of a lot less. Also, the password is null padded out to 14 bytes. So for the second half of it, you really don't need to brute force the whole problem space unless the person had an exact had a 14 character or longer password. Anything shorter than that, which almost everybody had, is going to have nulls on the end. So you start out your rainbow table, you know, with nulls on the end. And if they had an eight, nine or 10 character password, you're going to come up with it almost immediately on the back half. Yes, I remember watching it and doing it. And it's like after like four seconds, I had the last three characters of their password. And then a couple seconds later, I had the rest of it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And another perk of being a patron is that you get to skip the queue, which is exactly what C has done. They say, Recently, an admin colleague of mine forwarded me a message that his CEO received from Hashcast, detailing several email addresses and passwords partially redacted, that apparently have appeared in some of the disclosed leaks. I realized that this message was a marketing cold call, but how would I tell if this or other companies like it are legitimate services? For myself, I'd set up a notification in Have I Been Pwned for my company's domain years ago, but neither of us is deep enough into the cybersecurity realm to know who is real or who is worth spending the money on. Any recommendations for monitoring wayward user accounts on the web? Well... For your own accounts, just never reuse the same password for anything, and you don't have to worry about it so much. But I'm guessing from the way you phrased the question you're looking for, I want to know about all users on our domain who have maybe had one of their passwords exposed. I don't know if that's really worth paying for. You probably just assume they have and make them use a password manager and have unique passwords or do the two-factor authentication type stuff so that... Even if somebody does have the password, they can't make use of it. 
I don't know. You can get leakage alert emails in real time from Hashcast for nothing, zero dollars. That seems worthwhile. For a corporate account that, you know, monitors everything on an individual domain, it's pretty reasonable. It's 50 bucks per domain per month. You get the alert emails in real time. You get data for the credentials detected, a monthly report, and you get text message alerts when it happens. And if you've got 50 employees, 50 bucks a month doesn't seem terrible for that. Um, you could set up something yourself to do the same thing using, you know, legit InfoSec uh, you know, red team tools, basically, that will go out and, you know, look for these leaks in all the places that leaked data tend to show up eventually. But by the time you did all that, you would certainly have invested more than 50 bucks a month, I think, in developing that and maintaining that and dealing with it. So if that's something that you want to know about immediately, like, you know, hey, did one of my employees do something dull and reuse a password somewhere? Because basically that's the only way this happens, right? The only way your employee's company internal passwords are going to show up in these leaks is if your employee was like, you know, hey, I should totally use this password for like, you know, dogshop.com also. Right. Or they signed up for a Dropbox account using their username and password, the same one they use for work. Same thing. Right? They use their work email and password. Because the worst one is when you see these happen and people use the same password they use for the email address. Yeah. So like you go get the list off, you know, when, when Adobe gets hacked, it's like, oh, look, now I have 100,000 Hotmail accounts I can use. Right. So getting a notification of that might be entirely useful, especially if you're an outfit that's big enough that you don't like really know everybody who's working for you and, you know, trust their technical chops. Like for 2.5admins.com, I would not pay for this because I know Joe and I know Alan and I'm reasonably certain that neither of them is going to put their email password, you know, in when they're setting up an account somewhere. But if I had 100 employees and, you know, half of them weren't technical in any way, yeah, something like this is probably a pretty good idea. You know, it's not even so much for that particular leak as just kind of to let you know, hey, this employee might be a problem until they get some extra special love, care, and training. And I should go make that happen now. Yeah. Although I can understand his point of being wary about using one that sends one of those marketing cold emails like that. I can understand being leery about it because just like, I don't want to do business with anybody who cold called me ever. But wow, that's an awful lot of stuff you're never going to be able to buy if you're taking that hardline stance. Like, you're not going to have to give a service like that a whole lot of information about you to be, you know, to be worried about how they're using it, right? They don't really need your permission to find out whether your employees are doing dumb crap and leaking passwords out on the internet. <laughs> they can look for that whether you say yes or no. Okay, Thomas says, I was wondering if you have any suggestions for old hard drives. Don't use them. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. Agreed. I have a number of old drives, mostly one terabyte, sitting around, which seem to be in fine condition. No smart errors or anything. <laughs> and I would like to use them for something other than recycling or gathering dust. Currently, I don't have a spare desktop or multi-drive enclosure I can use them in. My desktop is a bit older and could be used in this role someday. But with current supply shortages, I don't think I'll be upgrading anytime soon. I've considered getting a 4 plus bay external enclosure and running some type of raid on that, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts. I think that you can't put enough one terabyte disks together to get enough capacity to make it worth dealing with that string of stuff. <laughs> you know, you're talking about old, slow, small drives. Uh, they just 
don't really have anything good to offer. You talk about getting a four plus bay external enclosure, which is great. But by the time you put four one terabyte drives into an entire external enclosure that you now have wired up and you have to power and, you know, is generating heat and has four times the chances of failure, it's still half the size of a moderately sized new drive. You know, I don't really even recommend people buy anything much smaller than eight terabytes these days. I have a pile of old one terabyte drives in my basement because we've replaced everything in production. We don't have anything in production that's smaller than four terabytes anymore. But mostly, you know, once a hard drive's past five years of, of runtime, there's not much point trying to run it anymore. It's just, you know, it's on its last leg. It's like you could do a four-way mirror to try to do the OS drive for some spare machine or something, but it's just not worth the hassle. If you just need OS drives or something, you can get small SSDs really cheap. And if you need any amount of storage, you can get a single drive that'll be more than all of your one terabyte drives strung together and has five years of good life left in it, unlike the one terabyte drives. Well, you two have been very negative about this. I'm going to have a positive suggestion. Fantastic. And that is learn about something like ZFS. If you don't know about ZFS, then buy very cheap enclosures like USB enclosures off Amazon or eBay and plug them into your desktop and do some practicing and learning about ZFS stuff with it because doesn't really matter what happens to the data on there this is only for learning just chuck some old files on there that are backed up elsewhere and learn about the various aspects of zfs or other raid or even butterfs or whatever it is do some testing just have some fun with them if they're just sitting around gathering dust but it seems like you two are pretty agreed that you don't want to rely on them for anything other than testing and learning and fun Right, like I could, I could see the case of using them for a home lab or something, but at the same time, ZFS will let you do that with sparse files in your slash TMP directory or whatever. So it's not worth the electricity to plug them in. Yeah, if you want to use them in a lab to experiment with different RAID arrays and dealing with drives that fail, sure, I guess it's pretty marginal. I mean, it basically boils down to the important thing here is don't rely on those for anything. You really should not. So anything that doesn't involve you relying on them functioning is probably fine. It just kind of all falls into the general category of, you know, dicking around. (laughs) Maybe that's playing with things in a home lab like, you know, Joe talked about. Probably the most useful way to do that would be to to get some idea of how performance scales with RAID maybe because you can, you know, see, okay, how quickly can I get through this workload with uh, four disks in a RAID 5 versus four disks in a RAID 10. You can do that kind of thing. Of course, that's your understanding there is also going to be hampered by the fact that they're mostly going to be half broken in different and interesting ways between them. So it makes it harder to get reliable results, but at least it's something to play with. Yeah, but... Don't put your your files on there and then complain when it breaks. (laughs) Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.